Turn with me to uh, Psalm 47. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we're going to go to a number of places, I think. Eventually, we'll make it back to Psalm 47. I'm ashamed we don't talk about this as much as we should, and so I thought I would do as much of a uh, run-through of thought so we could work our way back to 47 rather than spending so much time in the detail of it. I think it was Luther that said that this is a psalm uh, or a prophecy in regard to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you certainly see that as it unfolds and we read through it. Uh, the first verse, or verse zero, I guess, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples, plural, under his feet or under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for our time this evening. Uh, thank you that I just spoke or read aloud the words that you have written down for your people. And it reminds us of a wonderful truth that we have a king, that you have installed your king on your holy mountain. And it reminds us of one day that will be fully realized by every single man. And every single knee will bow and every sing, a single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Father, I pray that as we uh, study tonight about the kingdom, our King, and His great ascension, that we would respond in faithful worship. For certainly, the psalm writer here is calling us to worship for these very truths. So help us to live a life that is in line with the kingdom already. Help us to live as the kingdom of people or as the people of the kingdom and help us to live a life of worshiping you um, for all that you have attained. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if there's... Cody and I was talking about this today. If there's one theme that sums up the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what is that? Could reduce it down to one thought. What would you reduce that down to? The what? The kingdom of God. Very close. 
for certainly in the kingdom of God, it is the glory that, that we see. But that's the theme that kind of that runs through the entire Bible. If you wanted to pull one thread, it would be the kingdom of heaven. And certainly that's where we're headed. And if you read John and Revelation, that's all John wants to talk about is the kingdom of heaven. And so what we have here, like I said, is the ascension, right? And here is, it's not the mistake that we make. Let's just say it's the lack of time that we have. We spend so much talk about the humiliation or the condescension that we don't go on and talk about the ascension. We talk about the condescension, not so much the ascension, if I said that wrong. And you've got to realize that one is equally important to the other. I mean, yes, we rejoice in the condescension of Christ where God became a man and died on the cross in our place. We celebrate that. But without the ascension where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, the condescension is of no value to us. Because it was his resurrection and subsequent ascension to the right hand of the Father that was the word from the Father that the sacrifice had been accepted that the king had been installed and we have a Lord that reigns over all peoples. So he is a reigning king. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. All those are kingly references, right? And so we understand that it was because... And Jeremy read them both this morning because he said he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that was above every name. You see, Paul just so easily moves from one to the next because they are eternally tied together, right? And I think that may be one of the reasons that we find the church so immature and disobedient in our day because it's the language of the ascension, the kingdom, and the king that should cause us to respond to him with humble, submissive, and obedient hearts. Because if he died for your sins and the story stops there, well, then am I free to go on and live a life of personal satisfaction and sinfulness and self-seeking and self-desire? I mean, I could because all my sins have been paid. But if I roll from the cross to the throne, I can't live my life like I used to live anymore because there's a king seated on the throne right now and I am to submit my life to the kingdom and the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so that's kind of some of the language that we're going to find in Psalm 47. But we, we think about the Ascension Day. I'm not so sure that we do a good job recognizing that. Like I, I bet most of us would struggle if I said, when is it? Because it's traditionally, and rightfully, I guess, according to Scripture, celebrated 40 days after Easter, right? That's Ascension Day. And the Catholics celebrate it, and that perhaps is why we avoid recognizing it, because they have actually a feast in regard to Ascension Day. It's called uh, Ascension Thursday or Holy Thursday, because it will always fall on a Thursday, right? If you go 40 days after you celebrate the resurrection, it's always going to fall on a Thursday. So they have a feast, but it's, it's not just the Catholics. It's uh, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and other denominations that actually go through traditional celebrations and festivals and those sort of things to celebrate the Ascension. We need to do a better job of that, certainly as Southern Baptists, but, and not just kind of dedicate one sermon to it. We really need to remember 
that God has installed his king on his holy mountain, just like Psalms 2 has, and recognize what Jesus accomplished was not just the condescension like in Ephesians 4. He also ascended to the highest place. So according to Augustine, and if you follow him, I think he was 4th century in the 300s. So we're talking about long, long, long time ago. Augustine said that the feast that's associated with the ascension originated with the apostles. And he wrote that it dated all the way back to 68. And so you can track that. The Lord Jesus, you know, sometime in the 30s was raised from the dead. 30 years later, we're celebrating the ascension with a feast. Don't know if that's true uh, because he's the only person that ever records that. Uh, in fact, you don't have any other recording of celebrating the Ascension Day until the 4th century when Augustine was alive. So there you go. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's celebrated with processions, uh, prayer vigils, and the Catholics certainly celebrate it with masses. So if we're going to settle down in Psalm 47 and celebrate the Ascension, I think it might be first if we do some runs through Scripture to remind ourselves of the king and his kingdom. So let's go all the way back to 2 Samuel 7 and kind of start there. i got maybe two runs, an Old Testament run, New Testament run that I want to make this morning before we actually look at the psalm. So go back with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is kind of the beginning where we begin to realize that there's going to be a king, and he's not going to be an earthly king. He's going to be a divine king, a heavenly king. 2 Samuel 7, uh, you'll notice over chapter 7, it's during the time that David was planning to build a temple. And I also want to, you keep this mark because we're going to come back and refer to 2 Samuel 6 in just a minute. But for right now, look at verse 12. This is the promise that was given to King David. It says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that's the first clue that this can not be some average earthly king. This is going to be unique. First part of verse 14 still applies. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So we begin to understand that this heavenly king is going to be the son of God. And then again, if you look down at verse 16, he goes on as part of the prophecy. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we begin to understand the promises of God, that He's going to bring a king, that His throne and His reign will endure forever, and He will be known as the Son of God, right? When you get to Psalm 2, it's much more than a, a, a promise, I guess, to King David. It becomes a prophecy that speaks to the entire nation. So run with me to Psalm 2. Now, I know you have this whole psalm memorized. Now, actually, it's very important. This is one you need to just immediately come to mind when you begin to think about Jesus as our king. 
and it helps us see the world in relationship to its king. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It all applies. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples, plural, devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He, in reference to the Father who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Again, the king will be the son of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise or show discernment. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage, or some translations say, kiss the son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this, you know, Psalms 2 tells us a great deal. And we obviously could spend the rest of our time here. But you see the throne. You see his reign. You understand it's over all peoples. And you also understand how all peoples respond to his reign. They despise him. And they hate him. And they reject him. Of course, you can see this now in the world, right? There is an intense hatred for the Christ. And we're beginning to see this take shape politically in our time. Certainly the left, the liberals, certainly are, have a growing animosity toward the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would imagine, and I've seen in certain places, even with their own country, the shirt, a man wearing a particular shirt that says, Jesus is king. And he was kicked out of, of several places. That's the offense right there. You can say a lot of things about God, God loves you, or all things about that. And that's not offensive at all. But to say Jesus is king, that's highly offensive. And of course, I hope verses are starting to come to mind in the New Testament for you very rapidly. Um, but again, you're beginning to see this take shape politically and beginning to affect who we are. But that's why I always encourage Christians, please don't associate yourselves so tightly politically because it's going to come around to the other side as well, because both want power. So it won't be just the liberals. It'll be the conservatives as well one day, because the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is offensive. And so anyone that submits their life to the king is going to suffer persecution because they despise their king. Nonetheless, this is what God has done. He has installed his son, and this is who he is. Now, if you run with me to Matthew, you'll see all of this fulfilled in time. So many references we could turn to in the New Testament. It's just unreal. But Matthew is probably 
the most careful and diligent to point these things out, especially since he begins in chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus and ties him to King David. But then again, there's a lot of references to his kingship. Look at Matthew chapter 2. I'll point you to three time periods in the Lord Jesus' life that we see this. The first is at his birth. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, another kingly reference, was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet Zechariah, by the way. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so even at his birth, they understood that he was the Messiah. He was the coming king. But he's only associated at this point in time with Israel, which would make perfect sense because the promise was given to David. And they're still thinking about an earthly kingdom, so they're making all their associations with Israel and Israel alone. They don't yet understand the prophecies that you find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, that he's going to be a king for all peoples. You can really pick it up in what chapter of Genesis? The promise given to Abraham, right? From you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so you understand it's not just a Jewish thing. God's doing a people thing, and it's going to be for all peoples, right? And so, again, this is the thread that you can pull throughout the entire Bible. So at his birth, it's recognized. Go with me to Matthew 21. Another huge time. They should have recognized it. Now, I'm sorry, this is a Zechariah quote. It's Matthew 21. That other one was, I don't remember. Was that Isaiah in Matthew 2? Does it say Micah? Is that Micah? Okay. Yeah, this is the one that Zechariah, Matthew 21. Look at verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem had become to Beth, and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place, Matthew writes, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So it's, it's in so many prophecies and it was repeated throughout the Lord Jesus' life. 
And you see it coming and you see it building through his ministry because he's exercising authority over all things, right? He's exercising authority over creation. He's exercising authority over spiritual beings and demons as he casts them out and he speaks to them. He's exercising authority over physical life. Even exercises authority over the dead because you remember he raises the dead three times. See, all this is a demonstration of who he is as king because he has absolute authority over all things, right? And so then we come to the cross, the culmination of his ministry, and that's in Matthew 27. And again, there is a tremendous reference to him being king. So look at verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Right? So from his birth to his death, this is the one thing that was communicated over and over and over. This is Jesus, the King. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. He is the coming King. But you don't see that, right? I mean, he dies. You get to the end of the story and he, he dies. And that's, like I said, that's often where we stop. And we should celebrate his death because it was a sacrifice that was given on our behalf that demonstrated the love of God like we've never seen before. But the story goes on. In fact, it immediately goes right on because he is resurrected from the dead and he appears to the disciples, right? And we get this story that Luke picks up. So go with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke's not going to stop the story there. He wants you to see how important it is and what happens next. And again, you could read the whole chapter, but we won't. You know what happens. 24 marks the resurrection. You have all these things that happens along the way. You have the two men on the road to Emmaus, which is a tremendous story. Verse 36 begins all the other appearances where he appears to all the disciples. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us to more than 500 saints, right? Then you get to verse 50 of Luke 24. It says, He led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is Luke's summary, okay? And notice their response. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And it wasn't just the fact of the resurrection because they had experienced that for a number of days. It was the ascension that Luke ties to the great celebration in the worship. Because they knew he was the king. And he was ascending to the right hand of the Father. Luke will pick this up in Acts, which is actually nothing more than Luke chapter 2, if you will. So turn to Acts chapter 1, because he begins the historical account of the church with the ascension of Christ. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven 
after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings, meaning his, his crucifixion and his death and his burial. After his sufferings, he appeared to present himself alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Lord had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, still don't get it. Still don't understand how the extent of his reign and his rule. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And we're going to pick that up in Psalm 47. Verse 9, After He said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received Him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so even when we reflect on the ascension, you've got to realize we're reflecting on the return. Because he ascended, Luke ties these two thoughts together. We know he'll come again. And there's a long list. And if you want to go to, uh, what's that website? GotQuestions.com. He'll give you a long list of things that's taking place in between his ascension and his return. It's a long, wonderful list. Uh, John 14, if I go, I will prepare a place for you. It's all those little promises like that that we have that's taking place in between the ascension and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to celebrate the ascension. We have to go from the condescension into the ascension so we can see Him as King, see Him as Lord, and submit our lives to Him. All right? So that's a little bit of a track as we... Oh, yeah, I had one more passage I wanted you to look to. So keep going to the right. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 because Paul describes his authority, I guess, better than anywhere else that I know. First and second Corinthians and go on to Galatians, Ephesians chapter one. Let me start in. Ah, you got to start in verse 18, right? OK, watch this. This is one of Paul's prayers for us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of being a part of His inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance or equal to with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." 
far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, all of it, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So many alls, right? And so that's who Christ is. And that's what God has done. And the church is the congregation of people who already recognize his reign. That's the, that's the reason that we turn from our sin and that's the reason that we pursue holiness because we recognize the reign of our king. That's the church. And so that's why it's so important for you and I to live differently, to live holy, because we know that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and has all authority over all things, especially me. What is it we pray Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're talking about. And I always add in that prayer, on earth and in me as it is in heaven. Right? I want it to be in me too. I want a demonstration of the kingship of Christ in my own life. So there's the backdrop. So now let's turn to Psalm 47 and see the celebration that takes place. Really, you're going to see three things in Psalm 47. This is kind of what I reduced it down to, and I might edit it. I know I'll edit it if I ever come back to Psalm 47. I'm in constant edit mode. First thing you'll see in Psalm 47 is the ascension itself. You see the ascension of the king. Second thing you'll see in this psalm is the submission of all peoples. Now, we had not gotten there yet, but we're going to get there one day. And the last thing that you'll see is the worship of all peoples. And I didn't put those in particular order, but that's just logical order for me. We see the ascension, the submission, and the worship. All right, let's, let's get to it. Verse 1. Oh, clap your hands... All peoples circle the all because that's out of place in the Old Testament. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. Now, let me say something about clap and shout. Uh, this is one of the rare times in Scripture where clapping is good. Paige always says, and usually I agree, Anytime we clap, it seems so weird in church. In fact, most of the time in Scripture, it's not a good thing. It's a way to mock somebody. It's a derision to clap. And I think in probably a lot of cultures that's true. I know of a few cultures that's true that the clapping of hands is a mocking. It's like whistling. It's, it's not a good thing. So it's strange to find it in the text that it's a really good thing here. In fact, it's a form of worship. And he even uses the word shout to God. Okay, so that's not something we typically do here at Corinth or in any Southern Baptist church. So I had to spend a little bit of time there and I found this quote from Matthew Henry that I thought was really good. He says this about the shouting to the Lord. He says such expressions of pious and devout affections as to some may seem indecent 
and imprudent ought not to be hastily censured or condemned, much less ridiculed, because if they come from an upright heart, God will accept the strength of the affection and excuse the weakness of the expression of it. We don't need to forget that. You go on in the New Testament and you find lots of places talking about self-control. And certainly you never want worship to look like a pagan worship service where there is endless shouting and clapping and those sort of things. But I think Henry's right here. If it comes from an upright heart, who are you to criticize those things, right? It's okay sometimes to get overwhelmed in our joy in the Lord and to lift up a shout. It's even commanded here because we're called to worship. And the ecstatic, the ecstatic context comes from the ascension. And we don't have any context of understanding this because we don't have a king. See, we have a democracy. And I know there's tremendous benefits. Don't get me wrong. I'm thankful to have been raised in one. But it gives us very little context for understanding the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you have a bad king, you still have a longing in your heart for the good king to come. It still serves its purpose because you have a king. And to not have a king is to not have leadership. To wander, to have no purpose, to have no law. It's a bad situation to be in. And to, so to see God or to see a prophet, you know, play the trumpet, pour the oil, install the king. It was a tremendous time of celebration. God has given us a king. It's awesome, right? We should celebrate the ascension with that kind of charismatic excitement and enthusiasm because God has installed a king and his throne is forever. And he rules and reigns over us. And we'll see just a minute the reference to his holy throne, meaning he rules and reigns in absolute purity and righteousness. We live in an unbelievable kingdom because we have an unbelievable king. So the first thing he does is he begins to call us in worship. He tells us that it is for all peoples. And we have to understand that. Of course, you and I understand that, right? If I be lifted up, the Lord Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. We understand that Israel was simply the first fruits among men that there were other fruits coming, and that's from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so this looks forward. And this is something that we understand that the psalmist would not have, I don't know that he would have fully understood that, that all peoples would bow and worship to the king. And so that's why we preach the gospel, right? We, we have this opportunity as, as the children of God to worship God, and we preach the gospel where there is no worship of God in order that it might, be worshiped to the Lord. And so we would see all peoples bow and worship to Him. We have the voice of joy in reference here, but I find it interesting that the voice of joy stands right against the word fear. Notice verse 2. Shout to God with the voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared. Now you go back and look at it, but there's a lot of references, or there's a couple of references rather in Psalms 2 to fear and joy sitting side by side. And you and I need to understand that. Because when we think about the fear of God, it needs to be there as an element of true worship. But they're not inseparable. They're not the opposite. In fact, they go hand in hand. 
we have great reverence for our king. We stand in awe of our king. We live in fear, meaning submission to our king. We walk in humble obedience to our king. And the joy comes from the character of our king. We draw joy from who he is, but how we respond is in a holy fear because we love him so much. So that's how those two things go together. Clap your hands, O people. Shout to God with a voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared. He is a, and this phrase is repeated twice. I'll show you when we come across the second one. A great king over all the earth. Another reference to everyone. Okay? He is a great king over all the earth. Now it goes on to his victories in verse 3. He subdues peoples, plural, under us and nations under our feet. In other words, we're first called to worship him because of the victories that he has won. He has subdued all peoples under him and nations under his feet. There's a whole lot of perspectives. This one's a little bit of a question mark because you don't know exactly what the heart behind the writer means when he writes this thing. Because when we think about the Lord subduing, the first victories that we should think about is the spiritual victories, right? Sin and death. He has won the great victory over those, right? You could think about it from the, whoever wrote the psalm. You could think about it from their perspective, meaning when the children of God walked into the promised land, God subdued the nations. I mean, He cast out all the peoples, right? He conquered them. He won the victory over them and gave the promised land to Israel. And so that's kind of how they would have thought of that. But you and I think of it from a very different perspective. But one commentator really stumped me. And he wrote this. He subdues the people by preaching the gospel to them. And that is equally true. Because you and I were rebels that lived in rejection of the king but through the preaching of the gospel, he has subdued our hearts and won our hearts. And now we bow before the king. So, like I said, there's so many perspectives that you can think about this passage from. You don't just have to think about it from a military, militaristic sort of point of view. But at the same time, you can't leave that thought behind. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, it writes this about the reign of the Lord Jesus. It says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And because we have the word feet, I think that's probably the primary thought. That Jesus will reign until he has put everyone, spiritual, physical, under his feet. And it will be in a realized sense, not just a spiritual sense. It will be fully realized. So go back to what Jeremy read this morning. He's given him a name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And that means you will either bow willingly or your knees will be broken beneath you. But every single solitary person ever created in the image of God and every spiritual being will bow one day before the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they want to or not, they will bow before the King that God has seated upon His throne. Great time right here to stop and preach the gospel. I mean, you've got an opportunity in the season of grace to willingly bow your knee before the king 
and to be accepted by Him. It just takes you to turn from your sins and put your faith in the King. And in that day that Jeremy read about this morning, that day will be joyful for you because it will not be joyful for everyone. But for you, it will be the greatest day of joy as you see Jesus on that throne and joyfully bow the knee and lift your voices in praise. So nonetheless, verse 3, He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. And this is a great thought. Several different perspectives here as well. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Now, that's a land reference, the glory of Jacob. Okay, So that, that means to the writer who wrote this down, he's talking about the inheritance of the promised land. He's talking about the land references, the promises given to Abraham as the inheritance from God for Israel. And of course, we're still among those that believe that that will literally take place one day. But if you think about inheritance from a much broader perspective, what is it that God has chosen for our inheritance? The kingdom of God. Our inheritance is the kingdom itself. In fact, our inheritance is the king, right? Uh, let me show you this. Keep a finger there. We'll come right back. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Anytime you see the word inherit or inheritance in the New Testament, it's often associated with the kingdom of heaven. This is a negative reference, but nonetheless, it's a reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, notice verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You, you do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, he goes on to say. And so the emphasis falls on the present tense verb or action of those sinful deeds. And he clearly says, those of you who... who who live these sort of live in these sort of ways? Who do these sort of things? These things that define who you are as a lifestyle. You don't 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 fool yourself. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we can take that negative reference and understand in a positive light. Our inheritance is the kingdom of heaven. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God. Now here's a positive reference. Go to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. And if you're going to study about the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15, you need to study the whole chapter. I'm not going to read all of that, but let me pick up in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, physical, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable 
inherit the imperishable. That immediately tells us something about the kingdom of heaven. What does it tell us? It's imperishable. It's not physical. It's eternal. It's spiritual, right? Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, rather, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, here's his conclusion about the imperishable nature of the kingdom of heaven. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, keep going. Keep suffering. Keep rejoicing. Don't lose heart. Keep following the king and you will inherit the kingdom. And it's well worth it. So much worth it so that you'll never think a, a thing about the sufferings that you labored through. The reward is so much higher. Here's your, oh yeah, I had a quote about this. Listen to this. Uh, Plumer wrote this one. Excellent as are the earthly good things bestowed on the saint, they are nothing compared with heavenly blessings. Canaan in Syria was a dungeon compared to the Canaan above. The inheritance of the tribes of Israel was a mean and sorry thing compared to the inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for all who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, we're talking about things we can't even comprehend. But we're promised in Scripture they're so glorious and so wonderful that we can remain faithful and steadfast even in the face of tremendous persecution. And you need to get these things sorted out earlier rather than later. You look at what Jerusalem just walked through or what the Jews just walked through. I mean, that's a mark in history to see all those children tortured and killed like that. It's a part of what we're talking about, right? It's the anger and the animosity toward the God who created the heavens and the earth. I realize they've yet to repent and return, but I hold to the teaching that they will one day, as a nation, right, repent and return to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sufferings of this time will not be compared to the glory that's yet to be revealed in the kingdom of heaven. We won't even think about it. It will be so glorious. All right, verse 5. This, by the way, is a quote from 2 Samuel 6. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, that's, that's the centerpiece of this psalm. That's everything that he's talking about. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound 
of a trumpet. Now that's interesting because as he left, he'll come in the same way. We read that in Acts 1. So somewhere when he ascended, there was a trumpet. I don't know if that was audible. I don't know if that was just in heaven. But the writer writes, when he ascended to the throne, there was a shout and there was a trumpet. Now what he's quoting is 2 Samuel 6. You remember when David danced before the Lord? In verse 15 it says, So David and all the house of Israel was bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. So when they're bringing up the ark of the covenant in Jerusalem, this foreshadows God, the Son of God, ascending to the throne with a shout and with a trumpet. It was a joyful time. It was so joyful that you see David do what he did. He danced so hard that he unclothed himself before everyone, was mocked by his wife. Oh, you remember that story? Go back and read that story. I think that's why we have verse 1, and it's meant to kind of strike you in that way. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with a voice of joy. You're like, ah, I probably wouldn't do that. Well, in that charismatic moment, David did. Because the ark was brought to Jerusalem and it represented the presence of God ascending to the throne. And so it was a super charismatic time. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now look what that's followed in in verse 6, more worship. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. Same verb, four times. You get the picture. We're supposed to sing. We're called to worship again. Now I want you to compare the second part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 7 and tell me what the difference is. We take a huge jump. What did Tammy say about John? About when he went in the Audi? I think it was a huge jump, wasn't it? It's a huge jump. So let me give you a picture of the jump. So John and Emily are driving to the beach following Emily's parents. And so they want to peel off because Emily loves Teslas and there was a Tesla dealership and she just wanted to sit in one right next to an Audi dealership. So my son, and if y'all know him, y'all know this is so far out of character for my son, walks into the Audi dealership. Now his car, my car, we're same, we have the same favorite car. It's an R8. They started about $150,000. It's a sports car, two-seater, big engine. It's just an amazing car. My son asked to see a dealer, goes in his office and begins to talk to him about buying an R8. Of course, Emily's with him. He's never done anything like this before. So the guy's getting down all of John's information, writing it down. And as he's writing, he said, what are you driving now? And John pulled up to the dealership in his Volkswagen diesel 
you know, little bitty car. And as soon as he tells him what he's driving now, the guy lays down his pen and he goes, you're going from a Volkswagen to an R8? That's a big jump, don't you think? So, you know, at that point, the dealer's done. John and Emily are laughing. John's trying to keep his composure like, yeah, I might buy one. Anyway, they leave the dealership. So that's a big, that's a big joke around their house for John. That's a big jump, don't you think? And they talk to John. So if you'll notice verse 2 and you notice verse 7, there's a really big jump here in how he's described. In verse 2, he's great. In verse 7, he's God. In other words, we just found out that this king is God. This speaks to the divinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a normal king. Great just doesn't get it because he is God himself. And so we see how this prophecy that was given in 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled. This is the Son of God that sits on the throne. The one that died for us is the one that reigns over us. Condescension, ascension. Now, I'm glad you know him as your Savior, but you can't separate that from the fact that he's your king. One commentator said he's prophet, he's priest, he's king. He's prophet, he preached the message, the good news from God. He's priest because he offered the sacrifices. In fact, he himself was the sacrifice. But because of his faithful obedience, he has ascended to the right hand of God and he is king over all, right? And that affects how you live your life. It has to, even though you don't have context of having a king. For God is the king of all the earth, the son of God. Worship comes again. Sing praises with a skillful song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's another one to circle. His rule is defined by righteousness. Again, it's got to be God. No man's reign or rule could be defined by justice and truth and righteousness. So if this one's throne is defined by holiness, he's God. The princes of the people... That's a reference to leadership of the Gentile nations, more than likely. But notice what the leadership of all the Gentile nations have done. They have assembled themselves as the people, notice the reference, not just of God, the people of the God of Abraham. What's the significance there? Why, why would the princes of the nations be referred to as the people of the God of Abraham. And this is going to test the depth of your doctrinal understandings. Mm -hmm. Good thought, though. We've got to go all the way back to Romans 4. Could go all the way back to Genesis 12. When was faith... Huh? Because all the earth will be blessed for him. You're in line with that. At what point in his life was he credited with righteousness? Before he was circumcised or after? Before. In other words, Abraham is most, more closely associated with Gentiles than Jews. 
His faith in God came as a Gentile, so to speak, because he had yet to be circumcised. Therefore, he's the father of the people of God. And so he ties these references together, the princes of the people. That has no Jewish reference. That's only a Gentile reference. And so the rulers of the Gentile nations have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham because Abraham is the father of faith of all peoples, not just the Jews, because he believed before he was circumcised. I, I love finding little gold nuggets like that in the text that lead us along. They're so faithful to the doctrine of God. They never depart. And then the shields, that's probably the most difficult word in the verse to try to figure out. What is he talking about when he says the shields of the earth belong to the Lord? Since we've talked about subduing nations, perhaps it means the defenses of the earth. It's difficult. But then again, he concludes with this. He is highly exalted. Philippians 2 is where I take you to read what Jeremy read this morning. He is highly exalted. There's no one higher. He's got a name that's above every name, and it was given to him by God the Father. He is seated on his throne. Four questions, I'll, just for fun. If you'll notice verse 7, he leaves a word in here. Um, got the word skillful. That's not used a whole lot. Uh, it's actually the word masculine, which means a contemplative or contemplative or thoughtful psalm. In other words, here's what one commentator wrote. I think he puts it much better than I ever could. Let sense and sound go together. Let your hearts and your heads go with your voices. In other words, the words that we sing Go back to what I hammered so many months ago. The words that we sing ought to be consistent with faithful doctrine. It matters. And here's a wonderful illustration of that. It matters what we sing. It needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be consistent. It doesn't need to be like contemporary music that you hear on K-Love. It needs to be the faithful doctrines of God. In fact, this would take a shot Thank you for recording this, Tyler. This would take a shot at sacred heart singing. I, I grew up with much of that, so I can say that where they sing the notes. I mean, you could take this psalm and go, you can't do that. That's not thoughtful. That's not contemplative. That is not a skillful psalm. And in fact, there's more verses that speak to this. You, you can look at, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Paul writes this, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, talking about speaking in tongues, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Meaning you can't separate those things. What we sing with needs to be skillful, thoughtful, faithful to Scripture, and at the same time, it needs to resonate from the very depth of our souls. We need to be charismatic in our joy toward the Lord, and at the same time, faithful in our words that we sing. That's just a side note, but he, he, he put it in there, so I'll make a reference to it.